everyone loves TV Dad. On the next TV Dad, presented by Progressive, TV Dad meets the prom date. So you're here to take my daughter out, huh? Uh, yes, yes, sir. Now, I'm only going to say this once. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say take care of my little girl or something. <laughs> She's a kickboxer. She could take care of herself. Listen to your TV dad. Drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Potential savings will vary. This is like my fifth time recording this, so let's try this again. Welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis, and this week we are talking about the disappearance and death of David Glenn Lewis. Before we get into it, make sure to follow at Great Unsolved on Twitter, at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram, join our Facebook group, and like our Facebook page, both of which can be done by searching Great Unsolved on Facebook. We also have a Patreon where there are tons of Patreon-only episodes, a monthly bonus episode, which for September will be coming out today. I give you a shout out when you join, and you get early ad-free access to all the episodes that come out to the public. Please be sure to rate Great Unsolved 5 stars on Apple Podcasts as well, as it gives us more reach and more recognition in the podcast search spot. So let's get into the case disappearance and death of David Glenn Lewis. David was born in 1953 in Borger, Texas, and he was 39 years old at the time of this case. He graduated high school in 1972 and then went on to Texas State University to earn a bachelor's degree in political science after which he went to Texas Tech University Law School and graduated with a law degree in 1979. He became an attorney in Amarillo, Texas. He was a member of the American Bar Association, a Sunday school teacher, a night instructor at Amarillo College, a member of the Education Advisory Council for the city, and a district chairman of the Boy Scouts. It's said by everyone that knew him, he was super friendly, super selfless, he was just an overall good guy, which gave his disappearance a little more eeriness. In 1981, he married a woman named Karen, and a few years later, they had a daughter named Lauren. She was nine years old at the time of her father's disappearance. So with the little bit of background out of the way, let's jump into the few days before and the day of his disappearance. It was Super Bowl weekend in January of 1993, and it was the Cowboys versus the Buffalo Bills at the Rose Bowl Arena in California. Now, obviously, David and his family lived in Texas. David was a huge Cowboys fan, so he was super excited for the Super Bowl that weekend. His wife and daughter, Karen and Lauren, left for Dallas, Texas, which was approximately 400 miles away from their home, on January 28th. They were going to have just a shopping girls weekend, and then David would have the house to himself. He could relax, watch the game, record the game, 
And he was very excited about that. So January 28th, Karen and Lauren leave. It's not really stated what time they left at, but we do know a little more about David's movements that day. He told co-workers at his law firm that he didn't feel well and he went home early. However, he still managed to teach a class at Amarillo College that ended at about 10 p.m. that night. Originally, when looking at this case, I assumed the 28th was a Friday, but if the Super Bowl was on the 31st, it seems the 28th was actually a Thursday, so I'm not sure if he didn't go to work the next day because he wasn't feeling good or if he just didn't have to go to work that day. It's never really explained, and I just kind of thought about it, so I didn't really look it up, but it's assumed he just went home after that class that ended at 10 p.m., and went to sleep. The next day, a friend from church said he saw David rushing through the Southwest Terminal at Amarillo Airport with no luggage. This will make more sense when we get into kind of some of the oddities and inconsistencies in the case. We're going to find out a few things about plane tickets and airports, so keep that in mind. It was noted that he had no luggage, though, because if you're in an airport... It's kind of odd. Even if you had your large luggage checked, you would still think somebody would have a carry-on or a personal item, something. So having absolutely no luggage is very odd in an airport terminal. Police later state that around 10.30 p.m. that night, they saw a red Ford Explorer, which is what David drove, outside Potter County Court's house. The next day, January 30th, was the last day that David was supposedly seen alive. We don't have information on who had this sighting or where this sighting happened, but it seems police have confirmed that this was the last time David was seen. The same day, $5,000 was deposited into his and his wife's joint account. Neighbors also say that his car, the Red Ford Explorer, was parked at the house. And at this time, the Red Ford Explorer by Potter County Courts was no longer there. So this is kind of saying it was probably David's car at the courthouse because it was there the night of the 29th. But when his car is seen at his house, the car at the courthouse is no longer there. Later in the case, we'll also see that this is kind of confirming that David was probably alive and doing things around Amarillo, Texas on the 30th as well. So moving on to the 31st, which is the actual day of David's disappearance. There were no confirmed sightings of David that day, but this was also the day Karen and Lauren returned home. They expected to find David watching a recording of the game, or sleeping, or eating, just doing something relaxing at home. But obviously, he was not there. They did find a few odd things, though. They found that the TV was still recording. Supposedly, by the time they got home, the game had ended, so if David had been home, he probably would have stopped the recording. 
It was stated that they had a VHS player recorder that did not have a timer. So David would have had to be there to start the recording when the game started. Or someone would have had to be there to start the recording when the game started. But it's assumed David was the one who started the recording. This seems to be one of the reasons that he stayed home that weekend instead of going to Dallas with his family. If he could have set a timer to just record the football game, he could have gone with, and then he could have come home and watched the Super Bowl. But, you know, if there was no timer, he would have had to be there to start the recording and eventually stop it. So it's stated the Super Bowl started at around 5.15 p.m. that night. Now, we don't know exactly what time Karen and Lauren returned home, but it was obviously probably after 9 p.m. if the game was already done. So it's assumed that David was at the home at 5.15 p.m. because it is later seen that the recording starts right when the players go on the field. Upon looking further in the house, they found two freshly made turkey sandwiches in the fridge, they found the laundry in the dryer, and they found David's watch and wedding ring in the kitchen. However, there were no signs of struggle in the home, and nothing was missing. So, robbery gone wrong, or robbery of any kind, was kind of counted out immediately. Karen didn't really think much of it. She thought it was a little odd, but she thought maybe David went to a friend's house to watch the game and he got held up. Maybe they were drinking, talking, you know, he would be home later. However, he never showed up. I believe on the night of the 31st, this sighting took place, but a sheriff's deputy said they saw someone resembling David outside Potter County Court's building taking photos of a red Ford Explorer. Okay, on February 1st, David missed two work appointments, so Karen got even more worried and reported him missing. The same day, a taxi driver in Dallas says he drove someone looking like David from a hotel to the Dallas airport. He states that this man seemed nervous and only had $100 bills that he shuffled through in order to pay the taxi driver. Now let's jump 1,600 miles away from Amarillo, a 23-hour car ride, to Yakima, Washington. Someone in their car saw a man in the center line of of the road on Route 24 after dark. Route 24 was a two-lane highway 10 miles from the Yakima airport. This driver turned around to warn others and tried to not let this man get hit by a car. However, by the time he turned around, This man was already dead, and this was said to be at 10.24 p.m. He was thought to be the victim of a hit and run, and he was classified as a John Doe. It stated this John Doe was wearing worn military clothes and work boots. We would find out later that David's wife said he didn't own any of this. Glasses that David always needed to wear were in the pocket of this John Doe's shirt. They also had no ID, no wallet, and it stated there were no drugs or alcohol in their system. On February 2nd, back in Amarillo, Texas, David's red Ford Explorer was found in front of the Potter County Courts building. His house and car keys were found under the floor map, and his checkbook, credit cards, and ID were found in the car. 
Everybody states this was normal for David. He would often leave his checkbook, credit cards, and ID in his car, so this didn't really add any mystery to the case. That was really the last clue in the David Glenn Lewis case until 10, 11 years later. However, in 2002, the Amarillo police stated that David left voluntarily. They didn't really have any evidence showing that he was kidnapped or forcefully taken or killed, so they really had nothing else to say other than he left voluntarily. In 2003, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer did a series called Without a Trace, going over the issues of police handling adult missing persons cases and the issues with the National Missing Persons Database. Patrick Dutter, who was a Washington State police detective, saw this article and decided to use Google, which was not very prevalent at this time, to search into some local John and Jane Doe cases to see if he could find anything that the police hadn't. Only about a week later, he had gotten an extensive list of possibilities for different John and Jane Doe cases. Dutter had found David's case and matched it to Yakima John Doe. However, at first he was unsure if this John Doe matched David because he was not wearing glasses. But after searching through some police files and looking at the evidence file, he discovered that these glasses that David always wore were found in the pocket of the John Doe. In October of 2004, Washington sent tissue to the Amarillo police, and they compared this tissue to David's mother's DNA, and it was a match. David had finally been found. However, this obviously does not help the mystery at all. He was found, but he was found 1,600 miles away, wearing clothes that weren't his, and not wearing his glasses. It was very puzzling. So let's look at some of the oddities and inconsistencies and just more information in this case, because this all lends itself to different theories. David had no known ties to the Yakima area and absolutely no reason to go there. So why he was there is a complete mystery. There were two plane tickets purchased in David's name. It's unknown if David actually purchased these tickets because you don't need to provide identification to purchase a ticket. And at this time, you didn't even have to provide identification to use the ticket. So while it's thought neither of these plane tickets were ever used, if they were, we can't be sure it was even David using them. One ticket was purchased on the 31st of January from Dallas to Amarillo. This is kind of weird because this is the same day that Karen and Lauren took this flight from Dallas to Amarillo. Obviously, David was not in Dallas, so that doesn't make sense. The other ticket was bought on February 1st, the same day David's body was found, from L.A. to Dallas. Now, these don't make a lot of sense because David was not in Dallas going to Amarillo, and he was not in L.A. going to Dallas. Even if they're flipped, like they would have had to be if David used these tickets going from Amarillo to Dallas to L.A., Yakima was still a 16-hour car ride from L.A. There were no flights from L.A. to Yakima. 
and it's never seen that someone with David's name or identity bought a ticket from LA to anywhere else. So there's no evidence of how he got to Washington. Even if he did take these flights and they were flipped, Amarillo, Dallas to LA, we don't know how he got from LA to Yakima. There's no evidence of him being on a bus, renting a taxi, renting a car, any of that. And obviously his car was still back in Amarillo, Texas. Right when he disappeared, his family had concerns of kidnapping and his life being at risk. This could be because sometime before David disappeared and was found dead, he told his wife that he thought he was in danger. However, he never elaborated on this. We don't know why he thought he was in danger, and no one else can really give any insight. So could paranoia be an aspect here? It could, or David really was in danger, but we don't really know. One thing we do know is that David was due to testify in Dallas the week after he went missing. This case had to do with his former law firm and a client of his former law firm. When this came out, many people started to speculate maybe David was in danger because of this testimony. But when police talked to the law firm, they said this case wouldn't make David responsible for anything. It would fall on the law firm. So it didn't really seem like David had anything to worry about. However, David told his father he wasn't going to lie or cover anything up for his last law firm. He said, quote, tell the truth, whoever it hurts, end quote. So from this, we can kind of think maybe the law firm was lying. Maybe it had something to cover up and it did not want David to testify. This could be why he thought he was in danger. This could be why he disappeared. But I don't think we'll ever really know that. I'm going to mention one other disappearance here. The Johnny Lee Baker case. He was 47 when he went missing in June of 1994 in Borger, Texas. This was 18 months after David went missing. Like I said, David was born in Borger, Texas. Him and Johnny had grew up together, so it's kind of weird that he went missing so soon after David did. Apparently, he called his son at 9.30 p.m., and everything seemed just fine, but then he vanished, never to be found. To this day, his body has not been found, and no trace of him has ever come forward. Everything of his was left behind except his garage door opener. Now, it's stated he was in the garage when he was talking to his son at 9.30 p.m., so maybe someone grabbed him from the garage while he still had the garage door opener, but I don't think this case will ever be solved as there is really no evidence or leads in the case. So this is a little bit of a shorter case than last week, but let's go over some theories because there's a few. Number one, he left voluntarily. This is what police think because there's really no evidence to point otherwise. Even though he was found so far away and in the middle of the road, there was no drugs or alcohol in his system. I don't think he had any wounds. So leaving voluntarily is the only thing that makes logical sense. To back this up, it was probably him that purchased those plane tickets. He left all his identification at home. 
Could he have staged his disappearance, or could he have randomly decided to leave? Those are both possibilities. However, why? Did he really think he was in danger? Was he bored of his life? Did he have trouble in his marriage? There's nothing to suggest him and his wife were anything but happy. And he seemed like he really liked his life. However, he did a lot of things. Maybe the stress was building up. We don't know. Or did he really think he was in danger? That kind of goes back to the law firm. But once again, we don't know. If he was planning on leaving, why did he record the game? Why did he make food? And why did he put his clothes or the family's clothes in the dryer? These are all little things that you do, like, if you're going to need this stuff later, if you're going to want to rewatch the game, if you're going to want food later, if you're going to want your clothes dry later. But if you're planning on leaving, these don't really make much sense. Unless he was staging a disappearance. Unless he wanted things to seem normal until he just vanished. Why was he not wearing his glasses when he was found, and why was he in the road? If he wanted to commit suicide, there are much easier ways to do this than throwing yourself in the road to maybe get hit by a car and maybe die from it. If he left voluntarily, where did these clothes come from? Once again, was he trying to make sure he was not found, so he got clothes he never wore, but there's no evidence of him buying clothes anywhere, no real sightings of him, so we don't know how he got these clothes. And most importantly, we don't know how he got to Washington on his own. Another theory that goes with him leaving voluntarily is he had a mental break. It explains why he would leave, why he had new clothes, why he was wandering in the street, and why he was wearing glasses. However, there is no evidence he ever had mental health issues, but like I said last week, or pretty much every time I cover a case, people can hide it. Just because nobody thinks this guy had mental health issues doesn't mean he didn't. Another question I had here was, why didn't the hit-and-run person, person who hit him, ever come forward? Obviously, they could be scared of getting in trouble, but if this guy was trying to commit suicide and it seemed like it, or if he had a mental break, they're not going to get in a ton of trouble, and it could clear up a lot of things for the family and the police, you know. But I understand why they wouldn't come forward. And the other theory that kind of splits into two would be kidnapping. On one end, we could think he really was in danger. Someone from a court case watched him, attacked him easily without a struggle, and took him in their car. Or it could have been a random kidnapping. Someone found him home alone, attacked him without a struggle, and took him in their car. Once in Washington, there are three possibilities with this theory. One, David escaped. He got away and was confused or drugged with something that the toxicology didn't track, and he wandered into the street where he was killed. An accident. Kidnappers lost control and accidentally hit him when they didn't mean to kill him, so they just left him so that they weren't caught. Or murder. Kidnappers either drugged him or took off his glasses and threw him out of the car 
either in front of another car or they hit him themselves with their car. These could all be plausible, but there's not a ton of evidence pointing towards them. However, there's not a ton of evidence pointing towards anything in this case. Why were the tickets bought if he was kidnapped? Was it a cover-up? Somebody trying to make it seem like David was somehow in Dallas and wanted to fly home, or somehow in LA and wanted to fly to Dallas? Cover-up could make sense there, but they didn't do a great job. Why did they take David so far? Why not just kill him and throw him, you know, in the ocean or in a river or somewhere? I don't know. Why take him so far? 1,600 miles with a kidnapped person doesn't make sense. You have a much bigger risk of getting caught. Why did they change his clothes and take off his glasses? Like I said above with the theories of how he got killed, taking off the glasses could confuse him, disorient him, but why change his clothes? There's also no known motive besides if it was somebody he sent to prison or something who got out, but there's no evidence of that. There were also no sightings of David with another person. He was only seen alone. He was seen not really acting weird besides running into the terminal with no luggage and taking pictures of his car outside the courthouse. But once again, he was alone both of those times. He was not with anyone else. And how or why was his car at Potter's Courts? If he did go to the airport and these flights were switched, his car would have been at the airport, you would think. It wouldn't have been at the courthouse. So how did he get from the courthouse to wherever he was going? Now, here's what we know. Him or somebody else had to be at his home at 5.15 p.m. on January 31st of 1993. He had to leave his wedding ring and his watch. He had to bring his car, well, him or someone else, to Potter Court's building. Had to put ID cards, keys, etc. under the map. He had to change, and he had to get to Yakima, Washington, and Route 24 without his own car or reliable transportation. So we can say he left home after 5.15 p.m. on January 31st, and he was found dead in Yakima, Washington at 10.24 p.m. on February 3rd or February 1st. This is a 31-hour and 9-minute difference with the time zone change. So this drive is 23 and a half hours by car or 8 plus hours by plane from Amarillo to Yakima if he only took planes. This is with different connecting flights. If he took a plane to Dallas, then LA to Washington, this would still be a 17-hour car ride. So there was a very short timeline here, 31 hours and 9 minutes that he had to get this far. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room, and it just makes this case so much more confusing. So that is it for the case of David Glenn Lewis. I don't have a theory I lean towards on this. I've just been kind of hyper fixating on cases where bodies are found really far away from where they're supposed to be. Last week with the Judy Smith case, she was found over 600 miles away. David was found over 1,600 miles away. And the Patreon episode that is going out today has somebody in Poland found pretty far away from where they were supposed to be. It is just very interesting to me how people can kind of switch up where they're going 
if they did it on their own or if they were kidnapped without being noticed. So before I let you go, make sure to follow us at Great Unsolved on Twitter, at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram. Join our Facebook group and like our Facebook page, both of which can be done by searching Great Unsolved on Facebook. We also have a Patreon where there's tons of Patreon-only episodes and you get early ad-free access to all the public episodes like this one. There's also a bonus episode going out today on the case of Mateusz Kowiecki, a Polish individual who ended up so far away from where he was trying to go and it's just it's a super weird case i wanted to cover it for this but i really need the bonus episode for september so please go check that out if you join the two dollar tier or above you get access to the monthly bonus episodes thank you for going over the case of david glenn lewis with me and have a great week (laughs) 